The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I am your host, Rob Patterson. Here is my co-host, Don Chisholm. You can rest assured that within minutes, I was expressing my discontent all across the internet. You and every other nerd out there, Don. You and every other nerd out there. And tonight, we are going to talk about fandom. We are going to talk about the different kinds of fandom. We're going to talk about fandom's origins, where it's come from, what it's become, where it's going, and probably a little bit about some of the good and bad sides of fandom. But before we do all that, we should probably define what fandom is. So Don, how would you define fandom? Yeah, this is where it gets real tricky. And I think um, for sake of our discussion, we're going to be limited specifically to a certain type because everything has a fandom. Some of what we're familiar with, some of it you're not. I think in terms of the nerdly arts in the current modern era, the origins of that style of fandom go back to the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say are probably the Trekkies. Was it the 70s or the 60s? I mean, 60s did have the write-in campaigns, right? I mean, Star Trek was saved, quote-unquote, by massive fan uh, write-ins. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, I think, because what happens is, in a lot of ways, Star Trek is, is the first kind of modern entertainment that has a weird kind of symbiotic connection to its its audience. And its audience mm -hmm. is a very specific group of people that, that, that like I said, the, the fandom, uh, specifically what became known as Trekkies. And I say a 70s thing mm -hmm. because you're right. Um, the show came out and, and it did pretty good, but for the expense, the ratings didn't justify it and they kept trying to cancel it. Mm -hmm. And you had these organized groups of, of, hardcore fans that were writing in and that's what kept it going was that every time they wanted to cancel it, they got so much hate mail that they brought it back yeah it lasts three seasons and then it's canceled for good why i say it's a 70s thing is because in the 1970s star trek comes back in syndication mm -hmm. that's when it takes off right because at, at that point um the pressure of the expense is off because it's being bought secondhand Mm -hmm. uh, the guys who are showing it now bought it for cheap and you've got the, the, the roots of those write-in campaigns from the 60s are now forming an organized fandom they're producing um, material zines zines but there was books there were like shirts mm -hmm. patches like portfolio collections um, people were writing novels that continued it uh, the what we know as a science fiction convention, I do think, really does come out of the uh, the Star Trek conventions, the Star Trek the fan ones, gaps. Yeah, yeah, like that's where, and this is why I say 
what we think of as a fan nowadays comes out of that because there's fandoms before and they're going to mm-hmm. come up. They're going to come up really soon. But what we think of as, as like a true fan comes out of that Star Trek tradition. And hmm. part of that is I use the word Trekkie, which again, anybody under the age 35 probably has never heard that term. I don't know. Maybe I, I think I do see it occasionally online sometimes. You do, but if if you remember, that term was essentially a derisive term that people gave to these like obvious super hard fans of this weird TV show that got canceled five years ago. Oh, okay. So and yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because it Trekkie was an insult, and what mm. what you kind of had at that point. Again, going back, um, anybody under 35 doesn't remember when nerds were bad, but that kind of the entertainment nerd Mm -hmm. being kind of a a, a misanthropic, never going to get laid, socially inept type thing. I think that image really comes from that time as well. Right. That it was, it, it seemed weird that people dedicated themselves to what at the time was a relatively obscure kind of show. Hmm. Yeah. And, and. Uh, if you remember, that term goes away in the 90s because Trek-ees get rebranded as Trek-ers. Right. And that's... Ah, okay. You see yeah. that as a rebranding as to something less derogatory and more representative. Yeah, because what happens at that point, um, a weird transition to, I guess you'd say, second stage hardcore nerdly fan, was that Star Trek was known. It was still considered kind of nerdy. Mm-hmm. in the 80s and that but when the next gen came out a lot of the quote-unquote normal people absolutely loved the next gen yep they did so you lost the stigmatism attached to star trek in general and a lot of the fans did that rebranding because remember we hung out with ian and ian was like a trekkie par excel i think maybe only jack and randy are bigger trekkies than ian was right and he used to take great offense if you called him a Trekkie, but if you called him a Trekker, that was a badge of pride. Right, right. And again, it was, I think, it was that idea that because Star Trek was now mainstream and socially acceptable, the Trekker was the fan with an edge. They were that person who'd been like a longer term fan or was mm-hmm. more of a fan or was a little more knowledgeable, more into it. It was kind of more of a badge of honor instead of like a robe of shame, like like it, it used to be back in the day. Mm. I see your point. I also have to <laughs> wonder whether the internet had a little bit to play with it because in the 90s, uh, keep in mind, Next Gen came out in 87, but mm-hmm. in the 90s, especially by the mid-90s, we had the World Wide Web and Trekkers, Trekkies, whatever, were starting to become a force online. We were starting to see united fan communities, so all these disparate groups and all these disparate members of fandom were starting to actually become a united force at that point in a way that they hadn't really before not in the same level i mean there'd been fan groups but uh, anyway we'll talk about that later all right so before we go any further i thought that we should probably take a moment and talk about ourselves i know that's Hmm. gonna be a shock to the audience we never talk about (laughs) ourselves Uh, but I think that in this case, we should probably talk about what fandoms that we were part of and that, um, what our background is when it comes to fandom. If for no other reason to show that we are coming at this from a point of both experience 
and also kind of love in some ways. I mean, you know, we don't hate fandom. We might say some <laughs> stuff that's a little derogatory about fandom during this episode, but it's not because we are outsiders scoffing at fandom. It's because we're actually part of the community in one form or another, or have been anyway. Hmm. So shall I start or show you? Uh, you start. Okay, so my fandom roots go pretty deep. Um, I grew up on uh, Star Trek. I'm a Star Trek kid in the sense that I grew up on Star Trek reruns <laughs> as we were just talking about there. But specifically as far as fandom goes, I have had a variety of experiences with fandom. I have been to uh, gaming conventions, anime conventions, sci science fiction conventions, comic conventions, music conventions. <laughs> I have gone to conventions in Japan and Taiwan. I have been involved with uh, fandoms such as starting Anime London, which was London's first independent fan anime club. We had a school-based one prior to that that was connected with our local university, but I started the local um, independent one, um, which lasted for quite a while, actually. Technically, it's still going, just I'm not involved with it. Um, I have also been reading uh, comics most of my life, so I've been involved with comic fandom to one form or another. I was around when the World Wide Web first developed. In fact, actually, correction, I was involved with fandom on the Usenet, which Ooh. was the... For those who are too young to remember or know what Usenet is, Usenet is, was kind of a, a forum system that was created on the proto-internet. It was originally created for uh, college students and others to use, but it was basically just used by hardcore geekdom um, in the late 80s and early 90s. Even as the World Wide Web was starting to proliferate, Usenet was still a big thing because it was a way for all these different people to communicate with each other. Think of it as a giant forum and you've got the right idea. Or if you're oh. really new, it was kind of like Reddit, except that, well, actually, no, it was a lot like Reddit, actually. It was a lot like Reddit, except you couldn't upvote or downvote stories. It was a bit of a fire hose of knowledge, but it had all these different <laughs> subgroups and everything like that. So I was involved with the Trek groups, the anime groups, um, Rec Arts, Babylon 5 I was involved with. Yes, Jack, I was there for Babylon 5 <laughs> fandom back in the day. And this is when... The uh, creator, J. Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5, was actually hanging out on that group. He was a hardcore enough nerd that in between working on the show, he would actually come online and hang out on Rec Arts Babylon 5 with the true, true nerd fandoms. Um, I've been involved <laughs> with, uh, obviously, Trek fandom. I've been involved with uh, various forms of anime fandom from, you know, like Sailor Moon fandom in the 1990s. Don't judge. Don't judge. It was the <laughs> 90s, Okay. <laughs> um, I was involved with, um, what else, uh, Sentai, you know, Tokusatsu Power Rangers fandom in various forms. Uh, I've written probably about a dozen fanfics in my day, probably more than that, actually. And yeah, there's like lots of different fandoms in one form or another. I've at least been partly or fully involved with. So when I talk about fandom, especially anime and comic fandom, I actually do know it fairly well. I know it from an insider's point of view. And I've been there since fandom first appeared on the internet and the proto-internet, <laughs> and I've watched it evolve literally for the past about 30 years. So I do have a perspective on, you know, the way fandom has shaped the internet and the way the internet has shaped fandom and our culture in general. All right, so that's enough of me rambling on. Don, how about <laughs> you? What's your uh, geek cred? Well, that's pretty good. You're getting really close to the angry old man moment there at the end. <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm trying to, must not get angry. Must not get oh, angry. I, I knew you'd be going as soon as you mentioned Usenet. I know, oh, I know where this is going. 
You kids with your fancy non-beeping modems. <laughs> Actually, if I want to get really hardcore, I was involved with the bulletin board system, which sort of predates Usenet as well. Because I first got involved with <laughs> online stuff when I was 16. So that would be, what, about 85, 86? Yeah, I was involved with fandom and online fandom and electronic fandom in many ways right from the early days. I never got into the zine stuff, but I was there mm -hmm. for the electronic stuff right from the beginning. <laughs> oh, man, that does kind of take you back, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. <laughs> wow. All right. So let's hear your fandom cred, dude. All right. Mine works a little different. This is why I made the disclaimer at the beginning of uh, this episode about modern fandom. Mm -hmm. uh, because I come from generations of like hardcore nerdly fans. Mm -hmm. But the thing is back, like say when my grandparents and great grandparents were like fans, you didn't have fans like as a thing. Mm. So this is where I say like, um, I had relatives I grew up with that saw the old universal monster movies first time around. Hmm. And they were super into that. I've mentioned that that before, that the right. monster movies were a big thing for, for my family. But at the time, it wasn't considered, it wasn't like a separate organized group. It was just that there was a lot of stuff like that that people were just really into. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't build your whole life around it. Or even if you did, you were still, you were kind of seen as a singular entity. Right. That it wasn't, oh, he's one of those weird monster kids. Well, that, that concept didn't exist yet. It was just, you just really like this thing. Mm. And and that, that kind of goes on until about the 60s. Right. Because the 60s are where you get, like you've mentioned, zines. And zines are, are the original internet in paper form. Pretty much, yeah. And zines were how fans would get together and how fans would interact and how you'd get product. Because... Zines would have ads for buying and selling related items. Mm -hmm. uh, the zine movement kind of gets caught up in the counterculture. Because all of, well, all of your anarchists and political dissidents and such would do it, like zines and newsletters. And that, and that was how they'd, they'd communicate with each other. That makes sense. Yeah. And what you typically have back then would be uh, like our local hippy dippy group that was protesting, whatever, would be almost like a cell. Mm. And they would have contact with another hippy-dippy group up in Toronto who is also putting out a newsletter that we'd mail to each other. Yeah, yeah. Fandom kind of piggybacks on the back of that. So when you get to the late 60s, early 70s, when you start seeing like the Star Trek conventions, it was groups of people like that who were fans sort of coming together. Mm. They'd say, why don't we all meet at this place? And then they would. And then some guy would have like a, like a store or an attic full of stuff. And you're like, I'm going to have a table and I'm going to sell stuff. And then that would be a draw. Yeah. So this is why it's not until then you get like the modern fan. So I grew up with people who were super into all of this stuff, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, again, you didn't have that separation. Right. When you got to that day, like uh, for us, we're, we're essentially kind of the the byproduct of of that fandom we're like the second generation mm. actual hardcore nerdly fans yep personally i wasn't real active in any kind of organized fandom because mm -hmm. i'm not a joiner I, mm -hmm. i'm a misanthrope right but, but i did partake of a lot because i always knew people who were part of something and i had this weird network of connections 
Mm -hmm. So I knew people who were like hardcore Trekkies and I had an in with the Trekkies. Uh, I knew people who were hardcore comic fans had an in there. Um, If anything, locally, I was fairly active with like the role playing game community. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't always part of things. But I was somebody that was kind of known around here because I used to go to events and I used to kind of, I'd run stuff mm-hmm. and argue with the people in charge a lot. Man, go figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I did a lot with, um, I ended up developing that same kind of weird connection with uh, comic books. Because mm-hmm. I ended up um, keying up with people who work mostly in like the independents and the undergrounds. Right. Uh, local people, people outside here like that was how i met jeff mm-hmm. was i used to read uh his comics yeah jeff would yep and write to him and then he'd write back and then when the internet started he actually had a website where you could come and post and a lot of the people there were the people whose comic books i used to read back when i was a teenager yeah it was pretty cool yeah um at the moment the only real organized fandom i'm part of is i'm a member of the uh Rauer Brazel APA hmm what's that uh that's the i believe it's now the uh longest running uh comic book uh furry slash anthro slash funny animal uh fan semi-pro perf kind of community mm. okay wow that's, that's kind of impressive how long has it been running then oh geez it's been running since like the early 80s yeah i can see that okay like, I remember back, like, when I was a teenager, there was an issue of Amazing Heroes that did an article on it. Mm-hmm. And they had all kinds of samplings that. And it's like, that looks neat. These guys are awesome. Now, how long has Jeff been involved with it? Oh, he goes way, way back. To the early Again, 80s? Yeah, earlier, mid-80s, yeah. Wow, okay. That's pretty cool. And then uh, we had Ed Vick from Moo Press on, and he's currently the uh, executive editor of it. Okay, so he's still doing it, and he's been involved with it, I assume, for a very long time as well. Yeah, because he would he would do like submissions, and he does like uh, big editorials and that. Hmm, that's very cool. Hmm. And has no one thought of putting this thing online? Uh, they've hummed and hawed about it, but um, APAs were kind of um, APA stands for Amateur Press Association. Hmm. It's kind of uh, the next step from a zine. Hmm. That it's self, it's basically like self-published comics, and a lot of them would be they they followed the uh, the Japanese or the British style that it comes out every so often, and it's a couple of chapters of a bunch of different stories because everybody just contributes right. a, their part, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like a pre-internet internet, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who still do it, like there's different APAs for for comics and science fiction and fantasy and that. A lot of them don't want to go online because it's seen as sort of um, a badge of honor or carrying the the banner for the old school way of doing things. Right. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. It makes it more unique and special in some ways. Yeah, because they tend to be um, they tend to be closed. They tend to be done for the members, not a general audience. Mm. So that's why you'll get, again, like the zines, people write editorials about very specific kind of things. Right. That if you're a fan or a casual fan, you probably don't care about or don't understand. Mm. Like a lot of APAs will talk personally. So it'll be like, oh, if you remember Bob, he was a member such and such years ago. He's doing this now. Well, if you don't remember Bob, it's kind of going to 
Okay, right. sure. There's this guy. He did this. Unless you're you're like an archivist for mm-hmm. this kind of thing, and then it can be like an interesting slice of of backstory history kind of take on the whole thing. Right, right. So how long have you been a member of it? Uh, I started back in the 90s, but I left for a bit because mm. I burned out. Right. I got to the point I couldn't stare at a blank page without getting the shakes. <laughs> hey, yeah, it happens. And then a few years later, they uh, they mentioned, no, it's still around. And I thought, okay, cool. Because a lot of the guys, again, that, that, that publish in it, mm. they're people whose stuff I've been reading for years. So it's right. just kind of nice to see, ooh, here's this guy and he's doing this. Now, if I recall right, with that kind of thing, you have to contribute to get a copy, don't you? Yep. So, yeah, and that's basically how it works. Right, yeah. So you can't get a copy unless you contributed in something. Uh, generally, no. Sometimes what they'll do is uh, there's a print a print run that they'll do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll do extras. Like for Rauer Brazel in the past, they've done extras and they've gone to conventions with them and like sold them or given them away as prizes or that. Right. And you can find like different APAs. You can find them. Like if you go on eBay and look some of them up, they'll, they're there. Mm-hmm. Like you can find them for sale. A lot of times they'll be expensive because they'll be like a writer or a cartoonist or that in one of these things that that did take off. So this is kind of right. you know, early work. Early work. So therefore it becomes, yeah, valuable. Okay, no, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Actually, you reminded me of um, one of the reasons I was involved with uh, anime fandom in the early days was because it was the only way to get anime. Yep. Um, back well, in the kinda. late 80s, early 90s. Um, I mean, if you were watching the very limited stuff on TV, you had to trade tapes. That was, mm-hmm. that was a big deal. And that's how we generally, and I say we, cause I was doing it. Um, that's how, what we, what you would basically do is you would make contacts with people in Japan and you would make contacts with people here. The local people you would get fan subs from, there were fan sub groups. And if, if you sent them a self-addressed stamped envelope and a uh, couple blank tapes, with a list of what you wanted on those blank tapes, they would actually put copies of whatever you wanted from their masters on those blank tapes and send them back to you. Yeah. And, and you could also get stuff from guys in Japan and they would want copies of the stuff that we had here that they couldn't get either. Remember, this is the pre-internet days. Mm-hmm. And so even normal Western cartoons like Canadian stuff, like the raccoons, for example, or, um, you know, gi joe or whatever they didn't get to see that stuff in japan so to them that was actually kind of different and interesting and so you could actually send them stuff and they would they'd send they'd send you anime stuff back um different people did that to different degrees and sometimes it was a little unreliable but you'd also might strike up friendships with them you know write back and forth with them it was it was kind of like tape trading pen pals basically yeah, uh, um, there were also a few companies you could go to as well, and you could write to them, and you could buy. They are effectively pirates, basically, but you you could send some money to them and basically say, "I want this show, this show, and this show, or these tapes," and they dub them and they send them to you. And that was basically how we got anime back in the, especially fan subs back in the pre-internet um, era. And in fact, even the internet era took quite a while before we could actually transfer decent quality video through the internet. That took a good couple of years. Yeah, because that that one of the keys to um, what made a fan, as opposed to say a, a casual participant in things, mm-hmm. was that if you were a fan back in the day, um, you would typically have 
I guess you'd say, esoteric knowledge of the deeper roots of whatever you were into. And that included things like like TV shows. Uh, anime is a good example. Doctor Who is another great example of the same thing. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the fan networks develop as ways to get stuff. Yeah. Because um, that's... Uh, I was just watching a thing about that. In the 80s, when home VCR was 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 big, there was... A, was it the Doctor Who Preservation Society? Oh, was okay. one of these. Yeah, it was a fan network dedicated to tracking down the lost episodes. And they would find them because you'd, you'd find them in weird archives or um, you sometimes lucked out and an early adopter for home video would have had a copy of an episode. And guys would like shell out relatively big bucks for, say, like two episodes of one of the shows that's been missing since the original run. Mm. And the the Japanese stuff worked that same way, too, that... yep. It was really unknown here until real like the nineties, essentially late eighties, early nineties. Well, I mean, but you know, Robotech, for example, was in the like I think it was eighty five. I think it was so mid eighties. Yeah. yeah, but the thing was, when you got to the the, the mid eighties, Robotech made people realize it was Japanese stuff, but it was still American. They they still you know jury rigged it to make an American show. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until you get to say the '90s that you had companies that would True. release Japanese stuff as Japanese stuff, but you had the fan networks because that was um, back in in yeah, like right, right around Robotech, maybe just before, just after. Um, we started trading with guys in Japan, and we would get the stuff right from Japan. We had all this weird shows that none of us spoke the language at the time, so. Mm-hmm. You just sort of watch and go, oh, man, he kung fu that guy and his head exploded. This is awesome. And and this was where, like I say, um, for us around here, for like me and my little group of friends, we were really active in fandom in our own respect. And it was partly that sort of thing that you get a guy, he's like, oh, I'm looking for copies of the second season of Yurisei Yatsura. And we'd be like, what do you got to trade? And he'd be like, well, I've got a run of like the... Um, you know, Jim Apparel Aquaman comics and be like, okay, well, I don't like Aquaman, but I know a guy who has three of the old mobile suit variant Gundam models I'm looking for. So you will trade your Aquaman for the Gundam that I'll get. And then I'll talk to the guy I know in Japan who mm-hmm. will send me the Yurisei Yatsura that I'll then get to. And we did this. This is like what we did for our teenage years. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Good old fashioned horse trading. Yeah, and and that was how you how you did it, and like I say, because all my my bunch weren't active in any single part of it, and we had connections everywhere. You start noticing that all of these things work the same. That that there's yeah the horse trading mm-hmm. that you can cross you can cross genres and cross mediums. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it reminded me of like drug deals because you kind of had to build up nerd cred with whatever group you were dealing with before they'd really let you in. Right, yeah. Because I think that's one of the aspects of fandom that nowadays is a little a little not black and white like it was. Is that in the day you had casual fans and serious fans. Mm. And... The serious fans were the people who were uber dedicated to it, and they kind of tended not to want nothing to do with you unless you could show that you were kind of on their level. Mm. 
And it was a combination of pride. Um, like I said, this is the area era of the Trekkie. So you're still kind of an outcast. So they don't want like, if I've dedicated my life to learning everything I can about this weird, obscure 1950s American sci-fi TV show. Mm-hmm. And I've spent countless hours reading books and studying and like scrimping and saving and tracking down pirated copies of like the few episodes that still exist. I don't want some asshole who like just read about it in Fangoria going, that sounds cool. I'd like to watch that showing up. eh? was considered an insult. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) I can understand that. And that was partly how these like weird little cabals would, would develop uh, Mm -hmm. back in the day. Cause it, again, it was, it was that pride. Mm -hmm. It, it was the uh, the camaraderie of the outsider, yep, and the mercenary bastardness that all kind of coalesced into what became the 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 image of the fan up until like say the late nineties. I would argue that that image is still exists in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. There are still different versions of fandom, and I would argue some of them still have that. At least the casual versus the hardcore people. Um, especially once you start getting into some of the more esoteric fandoms. Right. Um, you'll start seeing people still divide themselves between what are called filthy casuals and, <laughs> um, you know, and true fans. And you'll still see that. Until recently, I'd argue anime fandoms still had that. Um, yeah. I would argue that it's gone now for the most part, but it's mostly gone because anime is just so mainstream. It's pretty much impossible to do that now. Yeah. There's, there's that. I think what you were hitting on earlier. One of the things that once the internet really took off, mm. when you get to like the '90s, the 2000s, I think that's where you start seeing like the death of the hardcore fan. Simply mm. because anybody who has an afternoon off and uh, an internet connection can become a super fan in in yeah in in hours. Yeah, it's true. You start with Wikipedia. You go to the specific wiki for whatever you're looking up. You get their history. You watch some YouTube videos. You see some YouTube comments. You you go to like a couple of like the the fan blogs and blah 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 by by whatever it is your your rule thirty four. You're looking at naked versions of it. Like and just like a matter of hours, you can go from knowing nothing to thoroughly being sick of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's one of the wonderful things about the internet. It's got mm-hmm. that lovely fire hose effect. Yeah, and 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 it's it's. It led to the death of the hardcore fan because it was hard to wear that badge of I know more about this than everyone else and I've worked harder for it when, yeah, pff, like a, a, a dude in a couple of hours can can match your level of expertise. I would disagree with that, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that you can get a solid basic foundation in most <laughs> fandoms in a couple hours. I would say that they can't really match your level of expertise, especially... If you've been involved with fandom for years and you've actually had the the lived experience to combine with the you know esoteric knowledge and everything, I'd still say it's possible to be a hardcore fan or a filthy casual. I find the term filthy casual somewhat amusing, so I'm using it somewhat sarcastically and ironically. But <laughs> but the point is is that um, no, I'd still say there's a difference. But I'd say the entry point to enter a fandom is much lower. I think it's much easier mm. to enter a fandom and or get sucked in as the case may be. <laughs> but even the internet, as someone who has somewhat esoteric interests sometimes when it comes to like weird, obscure, you know, TV shows from across the pond or things like that, there's an amazing amount of stuff that's not on the internet. 
that mm-hmm. if you want to know about that topic, you really, really, really have to go digging. It's actually not so easy to find stuff on some things. Like, for example, if you're a fan of uh, Starfleet, for example, which um, by by that I mean also known as X-Bomber in the original Japanese form, Starfleet was a uh, puppet show similar to Thunderbirds that was done by uh, Gonagai's Dynamic Studios in Japan and then shown in England as Starfleet. Um, and it was a huge hit back in the 80s. It was kind of like the Japanese version of Thunderbirds and probably would have gotten a second season if the studio hadn't burned down. But that's because they (laughs) played around with gunpowder just a little too much. But anyway, neither here nor there. But so, for example, last year I was doing research on it and it's pretty tough. Like you actually have to really, really hunt to find out like details about Starfleet. And even there are like early Japanese TV shows like super robot shows that we did a show on back in the spring there are some of those shows that are really obscure and you have to dig pretty hard to find out stuff about them or know people who actually know about it i mean there is still (laughs) levels of fandom and the levels of stuff that you have to really really work at to actually know about and you can't just do it in a single afternoon or at least you have to really know what you're doing to do it in a single afternoon and even then you're only going to learn the basics about the whole thing you're not really going to be a fan you're just going to be a someone who's aware of what you know that thing was basically you've probably never even (laughs) seen it especially if it's obscure japanese tv shows although you can probably find them somewhere on the internet if you are capable of writing the name in japanese and you might be able to find the opening and ending on YouTube. And yeah, anyway, you can work from there. <laughs> but my, my, point, my point is, is again, that there is still hardcore fandom out there for many things that are is still actually hardcore. And that you have to be hardcore to actually know where to get it and to be involved with it in one form or another. That's spoken like a true old school fan. Um, yes. Your, your example of Starfleet's kind of a bad one because, like you said, it's hard to find. You look at, or you can go order it off of Amazon because I believe Discotech released the whole series like uh, a couple of years ago. I meant information about it. You can get oh. the series. Um, it was it was fairly popular in its time in in England, so a lot of England mm-hmm. people remember it. And there is a Starfleet website, but it's kind of got a bunch of dead links on it. It's Something you can find information on, but you have to kind of really go digging. Let's put it that way. It's not something you can just look up a Wikipedia page on and find like the full history on. There's a Wikipedia page for it, of course, but it's actually <laughs> relatively small and sparse. And that's my point. There's a lot of things out there that have come and gone and that you'd have to really, really go digging to actually find out information on. And you'd have to really, really, really go digging to actually find the fandom to go with it as well. I don't think that's quite right, but I don't think it's quite wrong. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Mediocrity. Because <laughs> I think what ends up happening nowadays, um, where the, the nature of, of hardcore fandom changes is you can, you can, in an afternoon, find out everything about a something, but you don't, it still takes time and experience to build up any kind of like emotional connection. That's definitely true. And I think that's sort of the, the the big difference. Well, there's a difference between reading about something, like, like in a textbook effectively or something like that, or Wikipedia, and experiencing it, which is what you, I think you're talking about, where you build up that emotional connection by actually experiencing that show or song or story or whatever, genre. You 
you have to actually go and absorb it. Like, for example, if you wanted to become a fan of, say, the old pulps, just mm-hmm. off the top of my head, you know, like, say, old pulp detective stories. Hey, that's awesome. You could probably go out, but there's like a zillion of them. And even to read the best of them and such is going to take a lot of work. And mm-hmm. you're going to be involved with it for quite a while before you can actually really absorb enough knowledge to actually call yourself, well, a fan, both in the sense, both in the you know about this thing sense and in the I have an emotional connection to this and I truly, you know, appreciate this and enjoy it deeply sense. Mm. Yeah, I think there, there's that. I think in some ways it works backwards from how it used to because um, in the olden days, mm-hmm. there would be there'd be a hunt. There would be a story about how I got this, how I yep. found this book, how I got this tape. Nowadays, you don't get any of that mm-hmm. because I, like I said, I can go online and find damn near anything I want, and if it's not here, it'll be out in a month. So you don't get that kind of that hunt. You also sort of lose out in the surprise of discovery because mm. you you're when you search online, it's very focused what you're looking for. Right. Whereas in the olden days, if you like say old monster movies and you'd stay up all night and weekends waiting for the 3 AM, like monsters showing and they'd show something you've never heard of. You don't tend to get quite as much of that nowadays. Cause again, your search is more focused. Mm. And I think in some ways that's why I still don't think there's hardcore fans, but they're not, as prevalent as these or they're not they're not as as separate there's there's still that sliding scale but whereas in the olden days 20 percent would be hardcore now it's more like five i also think it depends on what we're talking about now you and i by default are often talking about media like for example yeah. comic books uh anime movies tv whatever that kind of thing but what if we were like model train collectors or mm-hmm. if we were uh, collectors of uh, Christmas ornaments, for example, or something like that, Christmas ornament or or you know, pottery or physical objects, for mm-hmm. them, the internet does make it easier for them to trade and find some stuff, but there's still stuff that they really have to hunt for and, and network to find. If you were involved with some form of physical hobby like that, often finding um, rare items and such still exists and is a real joy i mean yes ebay makes it a little bit easier yes that's true but there are exceptions to that too and going to like old model train stores for example hunting for that you know that's old witching set or something like that i i'm just making Mm -hmm. that up but whatever i'm sure that thrill still exists for many model train collectors or going to conventions and things like that and looking for those that railway station that was patterned after like this obscure japanese railway station for example and so there were only like a few dozen of them made it's like oh my god look it's that thing you know (laughs) collector's items and stuff that joy still exists and you can still have that hunt but i will admit that the internet has made that hunt less and less uh difficult and less and less challenging yeah i think um when you talk about collectibles of any kind Mm -hmm. In a weird kind of way, uh, what I think has happened post-internet is the casual fan has really, 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 really caught a break. Mm-hmm. Because, again, like it's easier to hunt things down. Like, a lot easier. Much, so, much. 
genuinely difficult to find things are still difficult to find. Mm-hmm. But what counts as difficult to find again has has changed. Like that's narrowed to truly rare pieces. Mm-hmm. And not just that, but because you've got um uh the fan groups, because you've got like say even manufacturer on demand. If I collect like say old model kits because I want to build them and I just like them as model kits and not collectibles, mm-hmm. there are companies that do reissues. Um, this this has been a thing for like say uh, there was a kerfluffle a few years back say for action figure collectors mm-hmm. that if I just like old Star Wars action figures and I want them because I think they're neat and I'm not investing or nothing. There were all kinds of people doing like repro parts and reissues and that. And it made the investors and the upper tier collectors, the hardcore fans of that, really angry because mm-hmm. it sort of cheapens the, the it, it reduces the value because there's more available and it made counterfeits more difficult to, to detect. Right. Like there was a big kerfluffle uh, with uh, the Star Wars action figure collectors because guys were making reproduction weapons because he always lost the guns. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people doing the investments were were cheesed because folks couldn't tell the difference between a reproduction and an actual authentic old one. Right. And it what it does is it sours the market a little bit, mm-hmm. which brings prices down, which again, if you invested... Is, mm. is a bummer. And if you're looking for authentic, a lot of times the repros you could tell in person, they do feel different, they look different, but online you couldn't. Mm, true. And then that goes back to the idea collectibles are always a bad investment, but it's also that it's it's the equivalent of that complaint between the, the filthy casual fan and the dedicated hardcore fan that the people who took the time and track down authentic everything to complete their set of Mego Walton's figures. We're pissed off that now a couple of guys were offering like repro John Boy hats. And everybody could have like a John Boy hat. And it kind of made you feel you wasted your life. And why would I go through all that? And it's that weird dichotomy that again, I think the number of hardcore fans is a smaller percentage. Hmm. But they start getting a little more vocal in the internet age because of things like that. Because there's more ins for a casual fan than there was. And it kind of feels weird if you're a true believer that all of these neophytes are now swarming your conventions and chat groups. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they can just kind of wander in and you had to go through all that work to actually do it before. Mm -hmm. No, no, I can totally see it. I can see how that would really piss you off. Well, I mean, it, it can depending on the nature of your fandom because this is one of the things that when people talk about fandom I don't think they get into is that different fans get something different out of what they're a fan of Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of people like say in the uh, role-playing game and comic book community that go to conventions all the time and they meet up like there's they look for each other at the conventions and that and Mm -hmm. a big part of their fandom is the camaraderie Right. That, say, the comic book is an excuse. It's something to talk about with yeah. these guys. And yeah, exactly. It gives you... So um, there's also people like I consider myself, I guess, a consumer fan. Mm-hmm. That the things that I like, I like them as what they are. So if I get 
like I like comic books, but I read them. I like model kits, but I build them. I mm-hmm. like role playing games, but I play them. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a separate type of fandom. And then what you get are there's the the investors mm-hmm. that they get into. They become fans for the information on what's going to be hot, what's going to go up in value. Mm. Um, and then there's there's fandoms of of the the weird neurotic obsessives that for whatever reason the voices in their head told them that this is the greatest thing ever and they must keep it pure or those those other people will like totally ruin it and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, you see that a lot in sports fans. Oh. Not exactly in, in that form and not as the angry neurotic, but sports fans are very dedicated to their team, typically like a local team. Mm-hmm. And there's a term, I believe it's a tourist. Right. Is what the, they call people who jump on the bandwagon when a team is winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fans are all like really bitter about that because it's 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 like you're just here for the good times, but you didn't stand by the team during right. all the bad times. And right. there's like rivalry there. That makes sense. And it's it's that same kind of idea. It's like what we were saying, like with the guy who dedicated his entire life to learning everything about, you know, going to guy's Starfleet. As mm-hmm. opposed to the guy who looked up on Wikipedia and just ordered the disc off of Amazon. Click, click, done. Okay, I got a copy. Yeah, and then that's one of the things that I think is a discussion that should be had because mm. how do those groups reconcile? That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. How, how, yeah, if you're the old school people, I guess they don't really in a way. I mean... You know, you put all that effort into it, and now you feel kind of cheated in a way. So how mm-hmm. can you accept the, the – I guess the only thing you can accept is that, oh, well, at least, you know, people love what you love, and they don't have to work as hard to get it, I guess, anymore. So that's good. I mean, so there's more people who love what you love. I guess that's the only way you can really reconcile it. Yeah, but remember for for a fair number of fans, which back in the day I think used to be a higher percentage, mm-hmm. but for a fair number of fans, that's a horrible thing because it kind of dilutes their passion and dilutes their import to, to whatever it is they're dedicated to. That's a valid point. Okay. And then you, you run into problems like this is one of the things um, mm-hmm. I know comic book fandom has had trouble dealing with for a long time Mm -hmm. is that idea of that's not like what real Batman would do. Right. Because when you get the new fans, Mm -hmm. there's always, there's going to be that, that shift that if like say the kids Mm -hmm. are into like whatever comic it is that you've been reading for the last 20 years and the company knows the kids are now involved they're going mm-hmm. to tailor things a little more to them because that's the new audience and you're the old audience who's getting old and dying off. Right. So there's there's that idea that there's animosity that builds up over these changes because, number one, it might not appeal to you as an older fan. And number two, it's that tourist thing. It makes it feel like they're trying to squeeze you out of mm. this thing that you've been part of and you've been dedicated to. And like I said, that's why even back in the nineties working in the comic shop, you never saw the guy that just casually thought, no, just kind of stop reading Batman for a bit. I guess it's just not to my taste. It was always the guy who like was pissed off. And you're like, this is stupid. And you're going to fail and you're going to go broke. And I'm going to laugh at him. And it sucks. And yeah, because it's those mm-hmm. hurt feelings, but 
we never we've never been taught how to confront those kind of hurt feelings because it's really only been half a generation or so mm-hmm. that you've had to deal with that as a hardcore fan right yeah we don't really okay that's true and it's it's a bigger problem too because in the 90s when trekkers became trekkies mm-hmm. i think paramount especially but all these other companies kind of suddenly realized wait if we have a dedicated obsessive fan base that means we have a built-in audience and we can sell them all kinds of stuff and you had things shifting towards that idea of the the hardcore dedicated obsessive fan ironically at the point when that was starting to die off because of the internet well yeah because the hardcore obsessive fan can also be your evangelists and you can sell them a ton of shit as you just said which is really what it comes down to yeah and that's it's it's sort of um Mm -hmm. because then you run into the problem that i think that especially say your Marvel and your DCs have now that mm-hmm. if you've proletized these people, right. And now you have to change because they're not, and not, there's not enough of them to support what you're doing. You can't change because they're going to lose their, their minds and they're going to work against you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's again, a relatively new phenomenon that uh, companies who produce entertainment are still trying to deal with. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think they are still trying to figure out how to deal with that. And also, but it's, it's you know, it's a monster of their own creation, so I'm not exactly crying tears for them. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to uh, weaponize the fandom, okay, mm-hmm. and use them as your marketing tool and get them to do lots of work for you, you can't be all pissy when they turn on you if you don't deliver. True. And unfortunately, that's where I think a lot of what what could be called toxic fandom actually comes from. Like fans doing really horrible stuff sometimes is often the result of fans that were truly dedicated to something, but then that thing abandoned them. Yeah, and that's that's how it's perceived at any rate. In a lot of cases, though, you could argue that that you know the, the 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 media the companies are perfectly happy to use them when they can but they don't they don't want to they don't want to uh, uh how can i put this well here here's a good example of what just happened with the um with voltron for example the new netflix voltron series i'll use that as an example because i mm-hmm. think it's time for us to also start talking about um you know modern fandom in some way um, where which happen- takes a turn to the negative right which, away. <laughs> which turns, turns to the negative right away. Sorry, folks. Um, but for example, uh, with the Voltron fandom, what just recently went down was is that um, you know they said that well in the you know seventh season we're going to reveal that um, you know one of the main characters is gay, which is kind of amusing when it comes to the Voltron series because the truth is the characters are so asexual and have so few romantic relationships that. <laughs> They could all be gay or none of them could be gay and it really wouldn't make any difference. So one of the characters, none of whom are actually having relationships of any kind, is gay. It's like, yay, okay, that means nothing, so what? But okay, whatever. I mean, that's just my take to, to you know, certain fans. That meant a lot, apparently. So, so the producer said, okay, so one of the characters is going to be gay. And they made a big stink about it. And that's 
that's fine and all. And so, yeah, when it came out, one of the characters turned out to be gay. But the thing is that a lot of the gay fans felt, well, you were promising us, you know, gay content, but it just turned out to be one of the characters who isn't in a relationship is now gay and not in a relationship. So <laughs> that doesn't really mean anything. And the producers mm-hmm. are like, yeah, you're right. Sorry. And the, fans, <laughs> and the fans were and the fans were really pissed, but I could one could argue that they have a reason to be pissed. I mean, the producers made it sound like that you know these gay fans were going to get you know a uh, a gay superhero character, and when the you know when things came time to deliver, they got a gay superhero character who isn't really about being gay and does it doesn't really matter. So they felt cheated. Um, whether that you know whether they were really cheated or not i would argue probably you know the media companies kind of overplayed it a little bit and you know mm-hmm. to build up hype but in fairness that's kind of their job like you know yeah. you know their their job is to like build up hype and get people watching bring eyeballs on the thing that's what they're there for that's kind of their job so it's 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 a little tricky but my point again is is so yeah it's it's a th- situation where especially with modern fandom where modern fandom a large part of it is about the fans using the media companies and the media companies using the fans i would say that there's a lot of reciprocal um exploitation going on on both sides yeah it it, it's always been like that um Mm -hmm. there's better examples from from years past oh go ahead i can think of two and one was, if you go back to, say, like, the late 80s going into the 90s, mm-hmm. Paramount had a weird kind of relationship with uh, Star Trek fans and Star Trek. Definitely, yep. Because there were a lot of times that people would produce unofficial material. And it'd be like, say, fan fiction online. But there would be books, mm-hmm. uh, like continuing stories, uh, tech manuals, things like that, that were unofficial Star Trek products. Yep. And for a long time, Paramount would kind of turn a blind eye because they realized that this was keeping the the, the thing alive. This mm-hmm. was keeping like an active fandom. And it was that idea they realized if you have that active, dedicated fandom, they're already made audience. But then you get to the 90s and they're kind of having a bit of an upswing and they're trying really hard to to bring back Trek in a big way. And that's when the cease and desist orders start coming out to these guys that for a, some of them for a long time were producing fan material. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're being told, and if you don't stop, you're going to jail. And I remember that was a bit jarring for a lot of them. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no, and, it is. It, Paramount has a habit of doing that. They just did another round of that like a year or so back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because whenever it looks like they might have another Star Trek hit in their hands, they bring the hammer down. Yeah. They're happy to um, let fans keep the sh- keep the flame alive in between, but they don't want <laughs> fans having their dirty fingerprints all over it as soon as they're the ones making money. Yeah. Um, a similar thing happened. Uh, you go back to the 80s in, uh, in Japan, mm-hmm. and to a degree here, but Japan had uh, the doujinshi, which are the fan-produced comics. They still got them. They, they do. It was a huge thing in the 80s, and they had the garage kits. Mm-hmm. That say literally like uh, in Japan, it would be a lot of hobby shops mm-hmm. would produce their own comic books and their own model kits. Right. Uh, you had that in North America. You had the garage kit industry take off in, in the 80s. 
and a lot of the subject matter would be like um, superheroes, uh, movie monsters, things like that, that the companies, when they were sitting on these properties for a long time, Mm-hmm. were perfectly okay with fan-produced material because they knew, like, a garage kit, you're maybe going to sell a couple hundred copies if you're super lucky. Mm. So it's 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 not like they're making a fortune off of your intellectual property. And, um, like, the doujinshi would keep uh, keep the, the, the characters alive. And in Japan, they were used as ways to mine new talent. Mm. Absolutely, that if, yeah. Yeah, if you did your fan fan comics... You might get hired to work for the bigger companies because they 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 would look at that and say this this guy can draw and he can draw like action stuff so we'll make him an assistant for this guy doing his thing and you get a job out of it and then in Japan in the nineties they started bringing the hammer down on these guys but again it was that idea that they wanted to uh, bring back they're starting to bring back some of these characters that are having a nostalgia wave. Uh, they didn't want the fan fingerprints on them. There was some controversy because a lot of times the fan produced stuff would be a lot more sexual and or violent than the original. Yeah, Rule 34 is in effect. Well, 34, and I don't know what you call the uh, gruesome, violent version of Rule 34, but that too. Yeah, yeah, true. Because you'd have, and the same sort of thing happens everywhere, but in Japan especially, you'd have like, say, some cutesy kid show that everybody loved that... You know, about, like, I don't know, I'm just going to use an example of, like, the happy robot dog that Mm -hmm. loved children. And then in the late 80s, one of the fans who's now, like, 40 did the version where the cutesy robot dog, like, not only, like, eats the children but rapes their mom, too. And if a couple years later you want to bring that back, you really don't want that version floating around out there. Yeah, well, too late. Yeah, there, there could be some brand confusion going on. And they brought the hammer down. And the thing was, in, in Japan, it was like a whole cottage industry for this stuff. That all of a sudden, the cease and desists were coming like fast and furious. And it was a mm-hmm. difficult time for, for fans because it was curtailing things. So it it felt like they were separating you from what you were a fan of. Mm-hmm. And they were limiting your ability p- to partake of what you were a fan of. Right. Now, the confounding variable being they are totally within their rights to do that. Absolutely. You were, you were technically breaking the law, but they sort of just let it slide because it wasn't costing them anything. And it goes with what you were saying. Uh, there's always been this weird parasitic relationship between fans and producers, but when you get to that time just before going into the internet period, you really did have these big conflicts Mm -hmm. between, it was the same thing too. Like um, in the early nineties, early mid nineties, a lot of the American garage kit companies were having problems because they would produce like a model kit of like, it's a Batman. There were so many Batman models Mm -hmm. and you're, you're not getting rich off of it. But again, once Batman starts picking up again, uh, DC brings the hammer down and all of a sudden you have to stop. Yep. And it was very jarring. Mm-hmm. Although for, for a lot of the guys, um, a lot of the folks I know in North America for the garage kits that had been doing it a while, they, they, they said, well, we were waiting. This was, this was going to happen sooner or later because it happened before. And they kind of took it with, you know, good humor. Like a lot of the guys 
to get a cease and desist was considered like a, a badge of honor because it meant, you know, Paramount noticed me, you know. So, yes, I mean, and it goes beyond that. I mean, it's generally in the interest of the corporations to uh, let fans do what they want as a promotional technique because, you know, why not? I mean, yeah. uh, one group was, there was an audio drama group called Pendant Productions, more or less, that built an entire audio drama group just around doing mostly DC superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, DC Comics, Star Wars, uh, some Star Trek audio drama. And they did all of these uh, audio drama and they used it to build up the fan networks and everything to, to build up you know their, their whole production system. Uh, you can go listen to some of them at PendantAudio.com except you can't listen to any of the fan stuff anymore because... Uh, DC Comics finally noticed them at when they were already in the like 40s or 50s of episodes. DC noticed them and brought the hammer down really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. But in, and they're still doing original stuff. Although going back to the parasitic relationship, though, as many other audio drama groups did, they were able to use fandom as a way to and doing fun fan dramas and fan fiction as a way to gather people together and then use that fandom to actually start to produce original work. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you brought these people together who are all like-minded and they were smart enough, at least when DC brought the hammer down, to say, you know, maybe we should continue doing more original work instead. We like each other. We work well. We've got this whole system set up. Why don't we do more of this? Yeah. Of course, you can get hyper-parasitic. There was that group that was doing Star Trek Axanar um, a few years ago where what they were doing was they went to the fans and basically said, yes, we want to do this like Star Trek fan film that was going to be at the quality level regular film. You know, come fund us on uh, you know Kickstarter. And um, people started pumping in like huge amounts of money into this thing because this, this project looked amazing. There mm. were two tricks that were going on there though. One, what they were really doing is they were using all this money to build a studio which then they planned to start a whole media company out of. It was basically a way to get the fan money, and when they were really going to produce the NXR movie, of course, but then they were going to continue on from there to actually continue to do um, original productions. Mm -hmm. But the fans were, of course, not going to benefit from that. The fans were only going to get NXR out of it. So in a way, the fans, using the fans, using the fan fiction as a way to uh, separate fans and their money. Because fans do yeah. have money, boy, do they have a lot of it. Some do. I mean, that's... And collectively, they do. Yeah, that's true. Collectively, they do have money. Um, individually, fans are often kind of poor. <laughs> At least most of the fans I've known are not that <laughs> rich. But, you know, somehow, they still manage to have massive collections of action figures, massive collections of, like, music, DVDs, T-shirts, go to cons a couple times a year... And all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, and afford uh, materials and such for cosplaying, even though they have no money. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'm right here, Rob. I can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know how some of that happens. Okay. Because uh, I, I can attest to that because I, I have a house full of things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because of, of these, like, weird fan networks that I was part of and that I developed that... You end up trading stuff. Um, I've had examples, and I've done this, where I've ended up with, like, a box of, say, extras mm. of, like, comics that I wanted. Or it's something that 
I ended up with because somebody knows you're into this, right? And I'm like, well, not really this. And then you know somebody else who's a fan of that, and you just sort of pass it along. Mm. Yep, I could see that. Actually, I wasn't quite thinking of you. I was thinking more of the teenage fans and such, but okay. Um, and they're 20-something fans. You actually do have two jobs. You are gainfully employed. Mm-hmm. You do have a means of paying for your fandom, and you don't usually right. whine about being poor. Mm-hmm. I'm um, used to it. Yeah, well, you're used to Okay, valid point. But there are a great number of fans out there, especially fan YouTubers who, yeah, seem to be both very poor and yet have huge amounts of fan stuff, which makes you wonder, <laughs> huh, if you only spent that money on other things. But but then again, I mean, I don't want to rag on them because, you know, that stuff brings them joy. And I bought lots of useless fan crap in my day too. <laughs> so I can't really rag on them. Well, plus two, don't forget that like I say, for, for the, the really dedicated fans, mm. a lot of the stuff you get, you didn't pay for, you traded for, or just ended true. up with because somebody was like, yeah, here, you might want this. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. That does that definitely happen. Um, okay. We should go back a tiny bit. So one of the things that's happened as well in the last mm, 10, 15 years has been the mainstreaming of uh, geek culture. And right. I think that's affected at least geek fandom in a huge way. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, Trekkers, yes, Trekkies became Trekkers. Okay, that happened and that. And that was sort of a mainstreaming of geek culture. But in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a true mainstreaming of geek culture. Where mm-hmm. people, as we talked about in a whole other episode actually, aren't really nerds anymore. Because almost yeah. everyone's into this stuff. Like, Everyone goes and watches Marvel movies. Everyone, you know, has a little like Deadpool t-shirt or something like that. And I really do mean everyone. When I go to the college, I see kids walking around with that stuff all the time. And they mm-hmm. might be people who would never pick up a comic book in their life or would never normally be into this kind of stuff, but they love Deadpool or they play and they play video games and there really aren't really nerds anymore. It's common culture. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I mean, being a fan has really changed and being a fan has really been changed by that. I think. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think that really it means being a fan on an esoteric level uh, or maybe being a fan just means that you like stuff, I guess at this point, I'm I'm not really (laughs) sure. I mean, I know that sounds like a really weird statement. So let me clarify when I say that. Um, Mm -hmm. When I say being a fan means you like stuff, I mean that you are into a general category of things that other people seem to like. And so you declare yourself at least a casual member of that fandom. Uh, Maybe you go on Reddit and you subscribe to that uh, Reddit group where people mostly gripe and share memes about that fandom. That's another big thing, actually. People who just get into fandoms just to share memes. That's yeah. actually a whole thing in and of itself. And some of them don't even bother to watch the shows or anything or watch or read the books or whatever. They just like sharing memes of the stuff. This ties in with what we were talking about a little bit ago that different kinds of fans get different things out of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that really gets addressed ever. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you're like a casual fan or a fan like me that I, I don't want to get into the lifestyle i just want to watch the damn movie Mm -hmm. because i like movies that it's it's a boom period and that's what you're getting because again you can i think one of the reasons why nerddom has become more mainstream is because it's a lot easier for people to partake yep 
Um, so back in the day, if I wanted to get into, say, Batman, like mm-hmm. we'll go 80s, even like before the uh, Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom Batman. If I wanted to get into Batman, mm-hmm. um, I had to like track down the comics and read them, which this was when they were starting to not be sold at newsstands and exclusively uh, were moving into the comic shop. So that was a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, There's all kinds of history. The comics would reference older stuff, like older characters, older storylines, that I had to have at least some kind of casual awareness, or mm-hmm. barring that, an awareness of how superhero comic books in general work, because I could probably guess what this story, how it, gasp, you're not dead? Well, yeah, we've seen this before. Mm-hmm. So it was a little impenetrable to, to a casual like reader, and you were still in a time when being like a nerd had that stigma. So people were kind of like shy about associating with those kind of guys. Mm -hmm. So it was separate, but now because anybody can, I can read a Batman comic or watch a movie or the TV show or play the, the video game. And if I have a question, I can just Google it and get a satisfactory answer. Um, you get more of that, that, that casual, casual fan involvement. Mm hmm. Um, which it's, it's in a way it's, it's, it's good. Right. Because like I say, it, it expands the brand. It expands your audience. It, 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 it gets you more bucks in a lot of ways. Hmm. And it, it, it loses that stigma because now everyone can participate. Um, I think about it back, say the mid eighties when we were trading for the, the Japanese stuff with people in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in high school, when we started, it was weird and esoteric. And then Robotech comes out and people kind of, oh, it's like Japanese, wasn't it? Yeah, kind of. And we used to have this tiny little portable TV and a battered VCR that we would get every couple months. We'd get a new shipment from these guys and would all hang around and watch. Right, yeah. And friends of the guys that would come over, like, oh, he heard about this Hokuto Ken thing. He wants to check it out. So I'm like, okay, bring him in. Next time there'd be a couple more guys and then the next time a couple more and at one point it was like fight club because i can remember mm-hmm. watching the hooked and Ken episodes with joker the guy who threw the cards and would like cut you into pieces with them right and we had around this tiny little like 10 inch portable tv crammed into the garage it must have been 30 guys wow and they weren't most of them weren't nerds it was they were normal people who heard there's this like weird cartoon where a kung fu guy makes your face explode and they'd be like that sounds kind of neat i wouldn't because it was new enough that there were no stigmatisms attached to like mm-hmm. the japanese stuff right like this was before anime nerds so right it was this thing nobody had heard of nobody knew how to take it so people would come into it whole cloth and i think that's the sort of thing you see now mm-hmm. that there isn't really there's very few of the nerdly arts that there's any kind of stigma attached to. Right. So people can just, oh, I'm curious, guys seem to like this, like, Batman guy. Let's right. see if it's any good. That's, and I suppose that's true, actually. And, yeah, it's, I mean, I consider that a good thing. I'm actually very happy mm. about the idea that there's not really much of a stigma to being uh, into those, that stuff anymore. Well, sort of. I think there are still stigmas. I think there's yeah. there are there are definitely are some, but not as much as there used to be. Let's put it that yeah. way. And again, in another like generation, you'll see those will die off because that'll become a thing that people are exposed, and then there'll be new ones that you know. Well, when your parents grew up watching um, Dragon Ball, 
they're, they're not really going to be all that critical of you, you know, being into anime or that kind of stuff or comics or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. they're going to be kind of understand. It's like, oh yeah, when I was your age, you know, I watched Dragon Ball and uh, Gundam Wing, and maybe okay, fine, Sailor Moon, and um, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, so I understand. Yeah, I can kind of get into that. Of course, the anime was better in my day, but you know, whatever. I guess if you're into this modern crap, that's that's okay too. <laughs> well, kind of, because again, I think that ease of access goes with what we said that you get a small but vocal group of fandom. Mm. That just totally rages at like everybody else because they're not up to their level. Well, I mean, uh, isn't that one of the interesting things about modern fandom, though? You have mm-hmm. levels and you you really do. You have everything from people who just kind of watch a show and enjoy it to people who live a lifestyle based around it. And spend all their time based around that thing. And there's all these different levels in between and you can enjoy it at any level. Yeah, I, th- I think what's happened there, though, is um, the mix has changed. Mm-hmm. So, like I say, if you go back to, to the 80s, the hardcore fan would be, say, 20 to 30% of fandom. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's much lower, whereas the casual fan is the majority of th- fans. Well, that makes sense for anything that's popular among a large group. It kind of does, but it's weird that um, mm-hmm. you got... You, you still get weird resistance to that idea from within fandom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best example I can think of, and I can think of it because of a Ty Templeton comic, was, uh, what was the guy, Tony Harris. Mm-hmm. When he went off in his rant about, I believe it was, he referred to them as fake geek girls. Oh, yes, yeah. About how it's like, the, the, the they're not real fans, they just like dressing up and making guys look at their cleavage at conventions. And I'm like, okay, first off, why is this a problem? Mm. And secondly, okay. talk talk about a way to get attention for your character. Mm-hmm. But, but he had this big rant that it was the idea that you shouldn't be allowed to cosplay as the character because you don't know anything about the character and you're not a fan and somehow that dilutes things. Mm-hmm. And then Ty Templeton did an absolutely brilliant comic about that filming Harris as the guy who owns a grocery store. (laughs) And that's why I remember it. God bless Ty Templeton. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And, but that's a common thing. And this is where people will refer to like toxic fandom. And in a lot of ways, that's what it is, is it seems like old guard or people who at least profess old guard ideals. Hmm that want to keep these new fans out because it changes things or because they just don't like it or because for some reason they're frightened by cleavage or something. I don't know. No, no, I think you're a little bit wrong. Sorry. I'm going to go out right and say you're kind of wrong. Um, When people refer to toxic fandom, what they're actually referring to in a lot of cases is the result of uh, the shippers. The shippers are where a lot of the toxic fandom comes in. It's okay. It's the people that mix their fandom with. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the, the shippers first. Of course, by mm-hmm. shipper, I'm of course refer. It's an internet term for those of you who aren't familiar with it. A shipper is someone who is into relationships. Specifically, mm-hmm. they watch their favorite show or shows or whatever they are, and then they have a relationship between the characters that is not an actual part of the show but they think would be perfect, okay? And they go to sometimes bizarre extremes in their fandom of wanting to see these two characters together. 
that's continued, but of course the internet being what the internet is, it tends to magnify everything to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. So it's allowed huge numbers of people who are obsessed with um, shipping of one kind or another, both gay and straight and whatever else, um, Mm -hmm. to obsess about it endlessly online. And because of the bubble effect of the internet, they start to think, well, everyone else thinks this too. Of course, but not it's not really everything else. It's just the internet feeding you everyone else who thinks it's the same thing to make you happy and to make you think it's big when it's really not that big at all. Shipping is something that has taken over. You'll see it's taken over uh, Tumblr. It was one of the reasons why a lot of people got off Tumblr is because it mm-hmm. just became this giant den of shipping and social justice. And there's where the other area of toxic fandom has come in. Not that social justice is inherently bad, but that people have started to combine their somewhat fervent uh, belief in social justice with fandom at the same time. And to often they'll do weird stuff. Like they'll basically, going back to the shipping thing, they will literally hound the producers and the creators of uh, shows and comics and everything like that with... If you don't, you know, if you don't uh, follow our most popular ships, you are obviously transphobic or homophobic or racist or whatever. And they literally try to bully them into it, you know, into mm-hmm. into making their ships into reality, which at least a little bit has happened with uh, Voltron. But I know, for example, there was uh, Steven Universe. The fans got massively out of control, like massively mm-hmm. into doing this. It literally turned into online wars about this about you know steven universe shipping and about you know gay characters and such and them trying to push and bully and pull the uh the actual producers of the shows right and that's where we get into you know toxic fandom where the fandom is actually warping and twisting the perception of even what's what's there on the show because people are just trying to change it all to their own agenda where people have this idea that the show is there to serve them and so and they get bent out of shape if the show isn't serving their own particular niche of uh you know shipping or whatever other weird fandom that they've that they've uh that they're imprinting onto the show i think that's a good definition for toxic fandom Mm -hmm. is like like you said that idea of people who think the the show or whatever serves them mm-hmm. and their perspective exclusively mm. because you're also hitting upon a thing that i refer to as toxic non-fandom okay where a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the big complaints and causes that i find come from outside of fandom mm-hmm. but get jury rigged in um we talked about that uh towards the end of the the show about american comics mm-hmm. and we've talked about it before that when you look at, say, your Marvels and your DCs, a lot of the horrible antisocial things that they get accused of mm-hmm. are coming from outside of people who read the books. And this this right. was the this was the complaint Marvel had um, with the idea that everybody said we want you to be more socially active, socially aware, and socially like conscious, and they did, and the audience stayed away in droves. And it's because the people I think that were pushing for that are not comic fans. They don't read these books. They will not read these books. They have no reason to read these books. It's just they kind of shunt in to make it part of their platform because you get more attention yelling at Marvel than you would like yelling at like a guy in the street corner kind of thing. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it, and I think it's that, sorry, go. Oh, I'll go. No, go ahead. Right, and I agree. I agree with you on that. And I think part of that though does come back to the whole idea of comics as mainstream culture. Like geek mm-hmm. culture has become mainstream, so therefore they feel they have to attack it. It is common culture. It is main culture. When it was yeah. minor, isolated, um, you know, just that, those people over their culture, they didn't give a crap how they drew women. They didn't give a crap about, you know, wh- whether the stories were politically correct or whatever before. But as soon as it becomes common culture, one could argue viably they have to give a crap at that point because, you know, it is culture that is shaping the world and they're trying to shape the world in the way they see is best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, they want to transform uh, comics into something that represents their political and social ideals. Yeah, and then I think what happens is, at that point, you'll get the backlash, mm-hmm. which is the same problem from the other direction, that you'll get people, a lot of times people who aren't, again, I don't think are, are exactly fans or are fans that left a long time ago mm-hmm. that are looking for a way to justify their cognitive dissonance of not reading Batman anymore, who will then complain about that in exactly the same way in these weird, broad, semi-inappropriate, where the hell did you get that kind of perspectives? Mm. And again, I think like this is why, again, it, it, it really hurts as an old school underground fan to say that I feel bad for like your Marvel and DC comics nowadays because they're getting yanked in both directions. Yep. And they, as a company, they want to appeal to the mass audience, but I don't think they know how to do that because I don't think they know who that audience is. One could argue the audience might not exist anymore. There may not really truly be a mass audience anymore. Mm-hmm. Not, not in the uh, not in the comics arena anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many different people with so many different likes and wants. It's becoming progressively harder to appeal to them all. I mean, even, yeah. even movies are having that problem. There's a, one of the reasons I'd say that superhero movies, at least the Marvel ones, are getting uh, so popular and have continued to get popular over time. They're so damn simple. Like, they're the most yeah. simple, simple of simple things, really, if you really look <laughs> at it. I'm sorry. You know, I've watched them all. You know, I've seen every Marvel movie in the theater, just like everyone else. But the truth is, if you look at them, look at the original Iron Man movie, and then look at the stuff that's come recently. They're grander. They're more spectacular. That part is true. But on a human emotional level, they're actually much, they're much simpler than they used to be because they're trying to appeal to a worldwide audience that's there hmm. they really are now good guys bad guys and they you know they beat each other up i mean there are some kind of exceptions i suppose but for the most part they're fairly simple films you know who the good guys are you know who the bad guys are there's going to be lots of action fighting because that's what you're there for yeah and it doesn't need to be any deeper than that i'm not necessarily saying that they have to be deeper than that but there's a reason why they're the movies making the most money is because they are capable of appealing to a mass audience, a mass global audience. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's my, that's my take on it. Um, Mm. And I think that fandom in general, I think, I I think it's brilliant the way you just put that, where you said that there are as toxic fandom and then toxic non fandom as well. And Mm -hmm. both of them are actually a negative influence on fandom in general. Yeah, um, because again, too, I think it's 
what you get nowadays and and it's it's an internet problem and we've talked about this a lot on on this show mm. you're getting the center of fandom is expanding greatly mm-hmm. the edges of fandom are shrinking like like as percentage wise but the way things work and even the latest incarnations of the old school fandom networks mm-hmm are making it so that those edges, even though there's fewer of them, they can be louder and have more influence than you'd expect. Oh, yes. Definitely. Because that that was the problem back in the day with toxic Mm non-fandom. When you go to the 70s or the 80s, was that idea that uh, for a network, they would Mm -hmm. assume that any letter that they got represented the opinion of, I believe it was 10,000 watchers. Something like that, yeah. So if I could get me and my other angry grandma friends together and start a letter writing campaign, mm-hmm. we could have almost any show we wanted canceled because it's going to look like millions of people hate it when really it's just 20 of us with a photocopier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And it's it's that same idea that you're seeing now when people will like like scream blue murder that they, they, they don't like this outfit or that you're not including enough of this or you've got too much of that and you don't know how representative that is True. and they can have they can have an actual tangible effect even if it really is just a handful of people yeah the wonderful thing about the internet mm-hmm. yeah i always find it kind of weird um mm-hmm. the current like nerddom fights especially over comics because for comics i grew up reading the undergrounds mm-hmm and you saw all kinds of like crazy stuff and you saw all kinds of people with all kinds of like agendas and perspectives right so it doesn't throw me now to see the kind of things that like people just totally lose their shit over Mm -hmm. and i don't know exactly how to reconcile that or how to carry that that like over right because it like for me again is kind of a sideways fan of stuff a lot of the complaints from both ends to me just seem kind of stupid okay how so well because it's 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 like you said with the voltron thing Mm -hmm. this character is gay but nobody has a relationship so who cares but you've got people on both sides that are just losing their mind over something that really doesn't matter Mm. basically yeah, and, and 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 you see like a lot of that. Like, um, you go to the early two thousands with the superheroes. There was tons of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, when they did the new fifty two, and they had the new Jim Lee design for Superman, and now he wears his underwear on the inside. People went crazy over that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. I told you the the incident that killed my my nerd rage that finally put it to rest was Star Trek Enterprise. Mm-hmm. The theme song has lyrics. Ah! Really? Like really? That's the really best you that can do. Yeah. And I and I saw that and was like I'm not going to be that. And then all my nerd rage went away and now I can accept pretty much anything. <laughs> That's very zen of you, Don. That's very zen of you. It, it kind of is. It's like weird nerdly Rinzai zen, so. Mm. Um actually we talked about the negative aspect of fandom. Let's talk about some of the positive aspects of fandom. Mhm. Are there any? no good night folks no anyway, <laughs> okay we're done well, yep well there's there's the stuff like we said there's mm-hmm. the uh, the networking mm-hmm. and the social aspect was a big part yep and it lets lots of people get together in many different ways mm-hmm. um and 
actually lots of young people. One of the reasons why uh, the comic cons, especially like the really big ones or like um, Fan Expo in Toronto, Anime Expo, etc., have uh, gotten so incredibly huge is the number of people that just go there to socialize and meet friends. They're basically like people, huge numbers of people using cosplay and fandom as a way to... Um, meet other people meet other young people and make connections and apparently get laid a whole lot to be blunt <laughs> yeah that's sort of a nerd thing now isn't it <laughs> oh my god is apparently that i've heard that those uh i haven't experienced this or witnessed this myself but apparently those cosplay apparently if you uh cosplay as the right individual there's a lot of people who want to engage in cosplay fantasy sex to go along with it apparently and so, you know, I mean, you know, they're probably the same people that uh, harp on the furries for, you know, having sex in furry costumes, which, okay, maybe they can harp on them for that. That's okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've read some accounts of people who, you know, cosplaying certain very attractive individuals who, uh, yeah, you know, were, were spending more time in the bedroom than they were on the con floor, basically, um, because they, you know, they... You know, there were enough people of the opposite sex that uh, found them attractive and uh, were, you know, they found them attractive and so off they went. I mean, apparently those things can be quite the meat market, but on a less, you know, purient way. Um, I've also <laughs> heard that, you know, tons of good old fashioned, you know, friendships and relationships are, are forming these days. I mean, they're, they're a way for people to, uh, who talk online occasionally and who become friends online to finally meet each other in person. And sometimes all mm -hmm. kinds of relationships are forming thanks to those. Um, so which are, which are not always just hopping in the sack together. Sometimes they're re actually real deep relationships. Well, and that's, I think one of the things that you're seeing too is for, uh, mm -hmm. for more nerdly things, you're seeing that your fandom can be a general part of your life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like that used to hold true for like sports fans mm -hmm. or history buffs that it was generally accepted that this would be like a big part of your life. But now you're seeing that expand. And I think, um, forgive the pun, but you're starting to see a lot of cross pollination. Uh, yeah. With, Sorry, uh, I can't forgive that. dude. <laughs> I can't forgive that, but okay, go ahead. I, I couldn't think of another phrase, but with that idea that say, um, with the cosplay you're getting people you know that comes out of kind of like the uh the theatric tradition or the the mm -hmm. live action role play tradition mm -hmm. that get involved in in like say like superhero-ness which is something that they normally wouldn't or mm -hmm. you start seeing things like the the gaming becomes more part of of the the genres and you start seeing a lot of different ideas propagate that way and you start like um like mm -hmm. you had with the garage kits right this idea of like model kits being tied into to other things like superheroes and science fiction. Right. You start seeing more of that. You also see um, one of the advantages of fandom if you're like a creator is it was a way to get your product out. Mm -hmm. Like that was big for uh, music. Right. When you think like everybody talks about like their garage band days where you do local gigs and you'd it used to be like you'd just record like a, a cassette mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of a couple songs. You'd sell it at like after the show and then people would trade those. And this was one of the things like the old like music magazines would have huge ad sections and it would be guys trading. And that that's one of the things that say like metal mm 
mm-hmm. that's attributed to metal taking off was you had guys around the world that would trade these like cassettes and that oh, yeah. and expose people to stuff that you normally you never would have been exposed to yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely that was a big deal i know mm-hmm. what you're talking about yeah um people today still love bootlegs and things like that where they're yeah. where they're sharing the these concert recordings and everything and it lets them experience concerts that they wouldn't wouldn't have been able to go to and to follow their bands around kind of virtually, so to speak. And um, mm-hmm. those networks build friendships. They absolutely do. They build friendships and, and they build connections. And, I and think they that's get awesome. product out. And they get product out. Oh, yes, they do. They do that too. Because this, this is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of casual fandom as opposed to necessarily super hardcore fandom. Okay. Because it's with the casual fans that you start seeing the more more propagation of different ideas. Mm. That like if I'm a hardcore sci-fi fan, then like it's got to be hard sci-fi. Everything else is just stupid and Star Wars sucks. Blah. Mm. But if you're a casual sci-fi fan, you're more willing to try different things. And then that's where you start seeing new things coming into the mix. Oh, okay. I, I see your point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I see your point. I think that's actually a really good thing, in fact, that, that you have those people that are willing to explore something, but they don't become so wrapped up in it that it becomes the only thing for them. Yeah, and it's it's an, a good example of that would be uh, role-playing games. Mm-hmm. I kind of poo-poo on the more theatrical-type gamers at times, I will admit. Right. But when you got to the 90s, when you had like the, the World of Darkness stuff came out, that brought all the emo kids into gaming and they didn't game. That was like what the weirdo brainiacs did. Mm-hmm. And when they came in, they brought, yeah, that more dramatic bend, that more kind of theatrical bend. And that's how you got live action role playing. Right. And live action role playing required a system to resolve conflict and situations. That had to be stripped down because it's silly to stop and like roll a dice in the middle of the street or wherever. So you got more stripped down systems and more kind of, um, I, they, they represented an ideal more than an event or absolute. And that led to your like more narrativist role playing games. Mm. And then when you got that into the mix, when you get to like the two thousands and this all starts coming home, you get people producing all kinds of crazy games that mix all of these ideas in different ways. And it's super healthy for the hobby and and for the medium, because you now have all of these new ideas. You have all of these new types of people that have been brought into the, into the hobby with different perspectives and ideas of what counts as fun, which leads to even more different things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, it's overall good for, for the uh the medium yeah i agree i agree and whereas if you mm-hmm. if you have people complaining that no armor class zero is a good armor class and scaring all of those other people away it's detrimental because again it, it starts narrowing up what what you can do and it mm-hmm. narrows up you know what people are going to produce and who gets involved right yeah very true very true mm-hmm. indeed yeah so, in that sense, you know, fandom is awesome. Especially in an age when you think about it, when so many people basically live their lives online. Yeah. Fandom is at least one of those things that allows for a human connection. It allows people to get out there and actually interact with other human beings. Hmm, um, true. And 
it, it encourages that. I mean, we have, for example, here in my city of London, Ontario, we have various kinds of fan meetups. There's like cosplay meetups, for example. Um, I've never gone to any, but I know that they exist on a regular basis and they have cosplay picnics and so they'll, they'll do different things. There have been uh, Trek fan groups here for years that will actually go and do um, little costume days where they'll dress as like Klingons and such and they uh -huh. go to the uh, local hospitals and interact with like the sick kids and everything. Uh -huh. And um, there's actually, I think there's even a, a Star Wars fan group where they're mostly dressed up as Imperials and they, they march as stormtroopers through the, like, you know, hospital corridors and uh, scare the hell out of the kids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, okay, and maybe you'll cheer them up. I don't know, whatever. The key point is, is that... <laughs> or else. <laughs> exactly. Papers. Paper citizen. <laughs> um, get out. Uh, anyway, don't worry, they can't hit anything. They're not really that dangerous. <laughs> um, anyway, the point is, is that you've got these groups that still exist of people meeting up in real life. And there mm -hmm. are people that might never have normally got interacted with each other or get to know each other. But through their fandom, they're able to make friends in their mm -hmm. real daily life. And I think that that's wonderful. Yeah, especially when you consider that the exact opposite used to be the stereotype of fandom. Exactly, yeah. Fandom used to be about just hiding in your basement and avoiding the world, which mm -hmm. I think we can both admit it is still the case for many individuals. I mean, that's that's definitely true. Not everyone actually goes to the cons. Not everyone actually gets involved. Um, mm -hmm. But there are a large number of people that do, and I think that that's fantastic, and I hope that and that I, continues. Well, see, and I think it will because, like I say, I think that's becoming more of the norm Mm. Uh, for patrons of the nerdly arts that because nerdliness is mainstream and I don't have to hide that I've seen every episode of the original Star Trek or you don't have to hide that you're an X-Men fan because everybody's seen the movies at least yep. that you see that that it comes out of the basement that that people can make that connection and people can be like a hardcore nerd without instantly being scorned by those around them yep exactly uh, so there's no more nerd shaming Mm -hmm. unless you're a brony well yeah exactly everyone hates on the bronies it's, <laughs> and that's still okay <laughs> i guess i don't know i don't get it but you know well to, i'm not to... even sure i don't even think they make those anymore those i thought they they what, bronies no the whole uh, my little pony uh new revival show didn't it finish a year or so back well, i think it's still on i've seen advertisements for it and the oh. game is still coming out oh okay maybe it's still there i knew they, that they... they just produced the dungeon book for the game <laughs> okay first let me say that i think that <laughs> the i thought it was the like equestria high or something where they made them all into like anthropomorphic people teenagers and sent them to high school i thought I, that was the one that was still running or something i i think that's a side story okay, i think that's, that's kind of its own thing okay well i thought that that well whatever but okay i have a question then what's okay. the dungeon populated with monsters what kind of monsters well this this is funny because i have to admit i like i've mentioned i found a copy of the game and i have this weird obsession with it what it really is it really is D D for six-year-olds Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a derogatory form. I mean, if you have a six-year-old that you want to get into gaming, there you go. They did a monster book. And you have to remember that mm -hmm. My Little Pony is owned by Hasbro. Right. Hasbro owns Wizards of the Coast, who are the guys that own Dungeons & Dragons. Mm -hmm. 
I think the idea of it being six-year-old D&D is intentional because there's a monster book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it works, the the kind of the layout and design, it's very like kid-friendly, pastel-colored, but it's familiar to anybody who's played third edition. Mm-hmm. And the thing that made me laugh my ass off going through it was um, in the My Little Pony monster book, the Flumpf is an official monster. Uh-huh. And you know what the flump is? Not offhand. It's kind of like a running gag in D&D. It's, it's a monster. They're they're kind of like floating jellyfish guys, but they're really nervous and kind of useless. Except, as I recall, once a turn, they can generate like a giant electric shock that kills everybody for this goofy little thing. And uh-huh. it's, the, it's the strangest D&D monster ever. And it shows up in every edition of D&D somewhere, often as kind of a running gag. Mm-hmm. And it's officially a monster in the My Little Pony game, which kind of makes it uh weird sidewayed tie in to D and D. Question, does the My Little Pony game use like stripped down D and D rules or something like that? No, uh mechanics wise, if you've ever played a game like uh Cosmic Patrol, it's kinda similar. Okay. You have you have attributes and you make an attribute roll, you get to add like a skill or ability and there's a difficulty number. Mm-hmm. And attributes are measured by dice. So if you have a d6 that's average. Mm-hmm. Uh d10 is you're really good. D20 is you're like the greatest at this in like the universe kind of thing. Right, okay. And it's a stripped down system, but there's actual rules for doing all kinds of different things and apparently now there's a a book of dungeons out for it. Oh, okay. The little horsey world is just riddled with dungeons filled with monsters. They have their own version of hell, apparently. There's a little horsey hell. There, There is. There's a Tartarus, which is guarded by a Cerebus. Of course. And this this is where bad people go to be punished for forever, unless they can sneak out. And, like, and they show a picture of this big gate with fire and and lava and this with this giant mutant three-headed i like there's a little horsey hell this is craziness that's awesome and and in a way it is because it shows that idea of like cross-pollinating because mm-hmm. say back in the day especially like a show ain't for little girls you would never think to include hell or the flump for, for whatever reason and now that's perfectly acceptable because nerddom is infused so much we're not worried about keeping it away from the children anymore like they were back in our day hmm. well again that goes back to the idea that our parents and grandparents had a very different youth and childhood than we did well They're, most people mine did well yeah um <laughs> well yeah uh for most people anyway well you know, I was talking with one of my friends about this the other day who's a bit older than I am, older than we are. Um, mm-hmm. And he was talking about how even back in the like 1960s when he was growing up, they actually, because he was a teenager in the 60s, um, mm-hmm. there were, te- they weren't really teenagers, he said. They were more like young adults. Like the thing is, you didn't want to be a teenager. You went from being a child to wanting to be an adult as you as fast as you possibly could. Mm-hmm. So they were more concerned with like getting a job and becoming independent and becoming an adult and entering what they saw as the adult work world as fast as possible. Right. And that was considered normal back then. It wasn't about an extended adolescence, which I think is one of the reasons for the current way fandom is, is that we have this extended adolescence now. 
where、mm-hmm. young people basically are staying adolescent into their twenties, sometimes almost into their thirties,、um, because you can kind of do that as long as your parents are willing to let you hang out in the basement or at home or whatever for、mm-hmm. very extended periods of time. Sometimes it's enforced, of course, because you can't afford to, because you can't get a job. Yeah, not because you don't want a job, but because there just are no jobs,、um, and or at least not ones you're qualified for, depending on what you went to university for, English degree.、Mm-hmm. Anyway,、um, so <laughs> the point is, is that you have this extended adolescence, and I think that that's also partly being created by the fact that we're just plain living longer and healthier、yeah. and such, and so. What be was our formative years are kind of extending out, and so they say that we're not really fully formed as a person until we're about twenty five. Twenty five is kind of the magic number, and、uh-huh. so I can't help but think what's happening is is that we're almost naturally stretching our adolescence out to that age of twenty five in many ways. Where、mm-hmm. until then we are not a true member of society. We're more like a student, and we're experimenting and we're learning. And then after that, we, in theory, become adults, and we focus more on adult concerns and such. Not again unreasonable if you can expect that the current generation may easily live a hundred years. Right. They may not have jobs, but they'll be around for a hundred years, <laughs> fighting the radioactive mutants. Yeah, that might reduce the hundred years thing for a bit, but but you know we're on the verge of a huge breakthrough in medical technology, and even human lifespan in our life has actually gone up several times, and、yeah. it's going to continue to do so. So the kids today, God knows how long they're going to live, and the kids beyond that. I mean, there was a short story I once read where the the people in the short story actually. Did the calculation? They realized that they were probably the generation that was effectively going to live forever. You know、mm-hmm. that if they kept, if they if、uh, the rate of life extension continued at this near exponential rate as it was happening, they were going to continue to live for two, three hundred, four hundred, whatever years. Their generation would be the first one to possibly do that. And the point of the story, I can't remember the name of the story or the author, but maybe someone can write in and tell me. The point of it was, they're like, "Holy crap! We don't have to plan for a normal like sixty-five years in retirement. We have to plan for eternity. How are we、mm-hmm. going to get the money to live for like two or three hundred years? What are we going to do to actually、mm-hmm. make money and be able to live comfortably during that long life?" And it changes perspective about what you do for a job and what a career means and things like that. I mean, you might reach seventy、yeah. and suddenly discover, well, you know, I think I'm going to become like a railroad engineer or something like that because you know I've been a software designer for the last like fifty years of my life. And okay, that that's enough of that. I still feel like I'm only in my thirties. So hell, let's let's go try something else. Yeah, I th- I think you're right. I think there's another thing that happens that. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly that we're prolonging adolescence.、Mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of a thing, and and you hear that a lot. But I think one of the other things that have factored in that look like that to a lot of people、mm-hmm. is that we have spare time,、mm-hmm. sometimes whether we want it or not. Oh yes. And in the information age, we're we're brought up to be information consumers.、Mm-hmm. And what those things kind of connect is we spend more time with with our entertainment, and we need more from our entertainment. And that's partly why, like the nerdly arts, become mainstream simply because it's something new to consume. 
Right. Like, if I'm a soap opera fan, you can only watch, I'm leaving you, Martha, John, no, so many times. And then, you, especially in the era of, like, recording stuff, like home recording, mm. where I can watch episodes of 20 years ago and see, wow, this is all the same shit. Right. So, to keep it fresh, you have to add stuff like a mad scientist with his city, like, run by robots and like a magic guy that comes out of a crystal and maybe we throw in a vampire and an alien somewhere and that's why people again that say back in our day would never think to watch like a, a superhero thing like that's like like batman you're talking the no 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 batman thing really are huge fans of the movies now because the movies are something a little different mm. They're written for, like you said, for more of a mass audience, maybe an older audience than they would. But we talked about the na 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 Batman that it was in a lot of ways an adult thing, mm. and it's it's that acceptance because it's it's like you say, people are realizing I've got all this time to fill. Mm -hmm. I can't be hoity toity and snooty and look down on all that science fictiony stuff because there's only so many sitcoms, you know, I can only watch Tim Allen bitch about the kids so many times. What's this game of Thrones thing. Everybody's talking about, you know, very true. And on an extended level, the soap opera fans are basically watching Korean dramas now or Japanese yeah. dramas or whatever, because they get sick of their formula and they can actually just go on Netflix, which they already pay for. It's like, Hey, mm. what's this Korean stuff? People are going nuts over and suddenly you've got huge fans of like Asian dramas out there. And who knows, maybe in 10 years, it'll be Argentinian dramas that are popular mm -hmm. or whatever. But the point is, is that you can get access to global um, entertainment now in a way you never could before very conveniently. And you can become fans of that stuff very conveniently as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess fandom in a weird way is actually kind of bringing us all together. Well, that and again, boredom. <laughs> true and and in this respect i think it's it's if you want to get philosophical mm -hmm. that it's like the the old guard hardcore fandom keeping the flames burning is what saves society by providing us with this magical entertainment that otherwise would have been lost mm. that's true that's very Cause, true because back in the day mm -hmm. it was the hardcore fans that kept doctor who alive it was the hardcore fans that kept it from getting canceled it was the hardcore fans that tracked down the old episodes and forced the bbc to to find them and and put them back together and catalog it and that's what makes it possible for us to bitch and moan about a female doctor nowadays very true <laughs> if they didn't keep the flame alive that's the way it would have been absolutely mm -hmm. so fandom is really a necessary part in some ways of media definitely Mm -hmm. um, of of keep of keep I guess of keeping some kind of cohesion and and organization to it. Right. Otherwise, it'd just be what's popular now. Do a shitload of that, and then it goes away. What's popular now? Do a shitload of that, and it goes. Which is kind of how entertainment used to work. Mm -hmm. Like you go back to the pulps, or you go back to the early days of TV. It literally was just ah, do this. Okay, it's done. Now we forget it ever happened until ten years later when we do it all over again. By that logic, you could argue that. Fandom is actually responsible, for example, um, serialized television like we have now where the shows are all like one big story each season. And in theory, even the whole series is one big story. 
because yep. the fandom who remember and encourage and support that kind of thing are what's keeping that going. And that's exactly true. And, and that has it start with the soap opera fans. I would agree with that. Well, but yeah, it was the hardcore people that got invested in the lives of these characters that mm, would, would make, if, if not outright demands would make suggestions or would give feedback Mm-hmm. to the people producing them as consumers of this thing and as people not just a consumer of this thing as a cultural artifact but genuinely invested in the events of said thing yep that's true and i think that that's an excellent point for us to leave fandom i mean there's lots more mm-hmm. we could talk about with fandom um about how fandom you know influences the media in different ways but i think we'll save that for another time um as it is i think we've gotten a pretty good look at fandom in this episode and it's good it's bad it's origins etc and uh, hopefully you listeners have uh found this an entertainment an entertaining trip into the world of uh fandom (laughs) I, I don't know, man. This show used to be good, but like the new ones, it's like they don't care and they think like their corporate overlords have way too much influence. I think so too. I, I thought we were listening to our fans, dude. Well, if that was the case, then the show would be better if you were a woman. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, I'll, uh, okay, we're going to be taking a break while Rob goes to Thailand. Um,. <laughs> When it come back, you know, I luckily I have a I have a generic name. Robin is my full name, so I don't That's even have true. to change. I, I my name anyway. I don't have. I just have to, you know, change, make a few minor changes, and I'm good to go. The wife's gonna be pretty pissed, but you know, whatever. <laughs> she'll she'll get used to it. Exactly. Do you think our ratings go up if I become a trans woman? I don't know, but it'd be interesting to see the backlash. Hmm. Because we'd finally get some hate mail. We don't get any hate mail. Okay. Well, this, yeah. Okay. This is the internet. What do I got to do to get hate mail around I, here? I don't know. We might get more supporters. Hmm. Well, well you, you get both. They seem to come together. Oh, that's these true. Days. Yeah. That's true. I mean, as soon as you do something quasi-controversial, you've got people coming out of the woodwork on both sides. Yeah. Because, again, that's that toxic non-fandom. The people who make it their issue, even though they've never partaken of an episode in their life. Very true. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Thank you to our fans uh, for sticking around and uh, listening to us for oh so long. And we will hopefully keep producing good, entertaining episodes. But we do request that you give us some feedback. As, uh, you know, media producing corporate overlords, we actually do like to know who's listening to us. And we do like to know uh, more of what you want. So if you want to know what um, we know, and hear more of us uh, rambling about stuff or more interviews <laughs> or whatever, you know, come to the website, obeythedna.com, and write to us and let us know. And don't be afraid to post the dissenting opinion. Yes, please do, so Don can laugh at you. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!